Panacea is a remedy for all ills or difficulties, a cure-all. Here's a sentence. The public program's most enthusiastic supporters tout it as a panacea for the struggling community. So a panacea, when you have something that is ill or difficult, you want a remedy. You want something to take it away, to cure it. Panacea. George Whitefield was an English Anglican cleric, an evangelist, a minister. He was considered one of the founders of Methodism and the evangelical movement. And he was born in England, went to college at the University of Oxford, and he joined something called the Holy Club. And he was introduced to the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley, and they would work together in ministry. Whitefield got his Bachelor of Arts degree and began to preach. But he didn't settle or take a job in any one church. He became what they called an itinerant preacher, someone who went around the world traveling and preaching, not in one place, but around the world and around the country. So this is your first, maybe not first, but an example of an entrepreneur in 1740. Someone who worked remotely. They did their job remotely. And they were a digital nomad in 1740. And he would go around and preach. And he preached what were called revival meetings. Called the Great Awakening was one of them. And he was considered controversial as well. Some of his methods and some of his preaching upset people. This was what he did. And eventually he came to the American colonies at the time. And it was said in his lifetime that he preached over 18,000 sermons to over 10 million people in both Great Britain and the American colonies at the time. And it said that Whitefield could get people excited through a combination of drama, religious rhetoric, and imperial pride, all mixed together at the same time. In fact, it was said that Ben Franklin heard Whitefield speak, and he came outside of his office, and he stood in the square, and then he walked backwards and measured the distance that he could walk and he couldn't hear Whitefield preach anymore. And then he did another math formula to determine how many people could hear Whitefield preach in a certain spot and geographic area. And Franklin measured that and came up with an answer. And when Whitefield would preach, people would turn their lives over to God. And they did it by doing something called the sinner's prayer. Welcome to the Stephen Thompson Experience. My name is Stephen Thompson, and this is my experience. I'm a dad, husband, man of faith, driven by curiosity, making efforts to be empathetic and compassionate. I'm here today to have a conversation with you about the past, the present, and the future with the hope that all of us will leave today ready to listen to our hearts and bring forth the contributions we wish to make. 
at a local, national, and global level. Today, I'm continuing to look at the music of Lady Gaga and the leadership lessons we can learn from it. Sinner's Prayer. Sinner's Prayer is the eighth song from Lady Gaga's fifth studio album, Joanne. And Lady Gaga didn't want to restrict Joanne to any particular genre of music, so she used dance, she used rock, she used country music. And that what was different about this album is that she used country music, and she enjoyed country music, and Sinner's Prayer is kind of in that genre, more of a country music type song that Lady Gaga was singing about at that time. And Sinner's Prayer, she debuted this song in a concert, her first concert. She was having a mini tour called the Dive Bar Tour. It was sponsored by a beer company. And it was in Nashville. And she only performed it one time. And she didn't put it on the regular set list. So one time she performed Sinner's Prayer in a dive bar in Nashville, the dive bar tour. Now that's interesting. Is it symbolic? But what the heart of a sinner's prayer is, it's an evangelical Christian term referring to a prayer of repentance. It's prayed by individuals who feel convicted of the presence of sin in their lives and they want to desire and they want to have a relationship with God through Jesus. And it's popular in evangelical circles. The heart of it, sin is bad, and the prayer is good, and it gets you into a relationship with God, and that is what people preached. And Lady Gaga sung about the sinner's prayer. And it's about change. And we all think change is a good idea. Now, George Whitefield. He was conflicted in his life, and his conflicts played out in his ministry in terms of slaves. He thought that they were human, but he also believed they were subordinate creatures. In fact, in Georgia, in the 1700s, they outlawed slavery. They didn't have it. 1735. But then along in 1747, Whitefield came along and made an argument that the financial woes of an orphanage was due to the fact that slaves weren't allowed. Whitefield argued that the Constitution of Georgia was really bad at the time it was a colony. And it was impossible for inhabitants to live without the use of slaves. And between 1748 and 1750, Whitefield campaigned for slavery's legalization. He said that the colony would be prosperous. It would not be prosperous unless the farmers had slave labor. And Whitefield wanted slavery legalized for the prosperity of the colony but also for financial viability of his orphanage. He felt that if they had slaves, they could support a great number of orphans. 
and Whitefield decided to argue for the legalization of slaves. And in 1751 in Georgia, they legalized slavery in Georgia. And this is before the United States became a country. So here we are in the South, in Georgia. We have a colony that had slavery, was not legal. But a minister of the gospel who preached relationship with God, who preached turning from sin, has now successfully used his ability to move crowds of people to enslave other human beings. Whitefield also used the scriptures to defend slavery. He increased the number of his own slaves. He used his preaching to raise money to purchase them. Said Whitefield became the most energetic and evangelical defender and practicer of slavery. And when he died, he left his plantation with over 5,000 slaves on it. <laughs> Some writers say that he used his evangelical gifts and his theological defense of slavery, and he participated in a tragic chapter in the nation's experience. 4,000 acres of land and slaves were left when he died in Georgia. So here we have a situation where if not for George Whitefield and his preaching of the gospel, we may not have had slavery in Georgia. Georgia may have remained a free colony in the South. Now, John Wesley, who was in the Holy Club with Whitefield, published a manual called Thoughts Upon Slavery. He defined slavery, and then he condemned slavery. He went line by line, arguing that slavery was wrong. He went through the importation of slaves from Africa, and he condemned it. He talked about the economic argument for slavery and condemned it. He said it was barbaric and cruel. He questioned that even slavery is indefensible on any level. And he said that you can't have a just system without a consideration of mercy. He argued against his friend Whitefield's economic argument. He denied that slavery was necessary to support the colonial economies. He pointed out that no benefit is worth any injustice made to receive it. He used appeals 
ranging from fear of God's judgment to denouncing the colonies and the people who were slave owners. This included their friends. Wesley said that the institution at its core was dehumanizing and barbarous. There's a term called confirmability objectivity. The findings of a study that could be confirmed by another person conducting the same study. So if two people, we don't have this, two people read the same scriptures, one person concludes that slavery is just, the other person concludes that, the slavery, that slavery is unjust, unjust, not just, wrong, in fact. And then we have this thing called the sinner's prayer, that if we pray this prayer, we will repent and we will change. Now, let's look at this, how this plays out where we work in our leadership. This idea of no benefit is worth any injustice made to receive it. Let's think about what we do on a daily basis. In the benefits that we supposedly give out, is there injustice tied to it? Is somebody being harmed directly? You know, we're reaping economic benefits at the expense of someone else. And this is something that you have to analyze yourself. Analyze your business. Analyze what you do. Is any benefit worth the injustice made to receive it? Let's think about something simple. Human trafficking. Pornography. Is it worth the benefits of whatever excitement that somebody receives from watching pornography? Is it worth the injustice towards women who are trafficked into it? You know, when you look at the, the wealth of a, of a country and you see a situation like this, for example. If you want to get a grant for a nonprofit, you have to go to the IRS, you have to fill out a 20, 30 page document, you have to pay the IRS $600. Usually, you have to hire a law firm to help you do this, and that's going to cost a good amount of money. And then you have to dole out that money, fill out the paperwork, send the paperwork in, paperwork comes back, now you have a 501c3. Done your paperwork from the IRS, you filed your 501c3, you have done your 1023 form, you've paid $600, maybe you've paid a lawyer, they file it for you and you want to go do some good. Just a person who wants to go do some good, and that's, that, that's what you have to go through, and that's legal, and that's what you do. 
Now, another person wants to watch pornography. They just turn on the TV or go online and they watch it. Now, what benefit is coming back to society? And you may say that, well, people have jobs and people have money. But when you look at the studies, brain studies, the effect of pornography on you or women having to make that choice to go into a profession that dehumanizes them. There's many studies out there that say that it does. What if we had a situation where you had to fill out a 20-page application, pay $600, pay a lawyer, and then you got the ability to watch pornography? And what if, on the other side, you were just simply allowed to turn in a one-page form and you were allowed to do good in the country if we eliminated the paperwork. Not the laws, but the paperwork. If we eliminated that. And we took the paperwork and we put it somewhere else. Would society benefit? No benefit is worth any injustice made to receive it. Where is the injustice and where is the benefit? Now, I don't know. And you know what? I, I looked up scientific terms for I don't know. And the majority of the scientific terms for I don't know are customer service terms for I don't know were interesting that came up. And I found this article, and it was called, What to Say Instead of Saying, I Don't Know. And here's what some of them were. Here's what I can tell you as one response. That's exactly what I'm seeking to answer. I can send you to somebody who could help you. I'm not sure who the best person is to answer that. And those were words they suggested to say instead of saying, I don't know. Well, why wouldn't you say I don't know? What's wrong with saying I don't know? How about saying I don't know, but let's work through this together? You see, some of the reasons why we say I don't know and then are to send people away, are to get them out in front of us, get them away from us. So we say I don't know, or we say I'm not the person to ask for that. Let me send you to somebody else. Maybe we could start saying, I don't know. Let's work on this together. What is better for us or for society? Working together or sending someone away? But you may be saying, but I don't have time. I might lose money. Uh huh. What did George Whitefield say? We're going to lose money. So instead of losing money, the panacea to no money? legalizing slavery. Is that the cure-all? If you want to serve money, I guess it is. But if you want to serve humanity, if you want to serve the person in front of you, serve the person in front of you.
You serve the person in front of you by saying, I don't know, let's walk through this together. You serve the person in front of you by taking their hand and walking with them. You serve the person in front of you by looking them in the eye. I had a conversation with somebody uh, today, and I was asking about some information about volunteering. They handed me a form. I had some questions about how to volunteer. Go get fingerprinted. And they handed me a form. I had some really specific questions, and it was more of give me a form, give me a form, give me a form. And I, and I asked, I said, just for one minute, can you, can you see the world how I see it? I'm coming to you to help. I want to help. I'm eager to help. I'm even eager to, to do what you want me to do, to fill out your forms, to fill out your paperwork. But I asked, asked a specific question. And a specific question should get an answer that applies to my question. Here's a form. How does that answer a question? I mean, that's what you want me to do, but can we build relationship and trust by simply telling people what to do? What kind of customer service experience is that? You may say, I don't have, but we, you don't understand. We don't have time. You don't understand. I have so much on my plate. I understand. You have a lot on your plate. You have a lot of people to talk to. But what's your purpose? Is your purpose the form or is your purpose the people? But who's in front of you? The person. We don't want to have a situation where we have less people and more forms. When you have less people and more forms, it means there's a lack of courage. And if you're a leader, you need to have courage to look somebody in the eye. And I'm sorry, I don't believe that sending somebody a form is courageous. Now, if you want to, now I'm not saying, I do think that we need to get rid of some forms, okay? Because I don't see any justification for them. Again, if you want to watch pornography, it's free. If you want to open up a nonprofit, it's a 132-page application. Let's just have that conversation. Not a 132-page application, but it's a 33-page application to open a nonprofit and $600 to the government, then you have to wait. Why? Couldn't we have one-page applications to do good? One-page applications to do good. Can we just remember that? To do good. What is our purpose? To do good. Well, what's, why do you want to make a big deal out of filling out the application? Because it hinders people from doing good. Because the person who can fill out the application has somebody else who can do it. Let's say you're a nonprofit owner and you don't have access to money, you don't have capital, you just simply want to do good. And here's your day. This is one day, it's a Monday. And on a Monday, you sit down at your computer and you really want to go out and and feed a homeless person. You really want to go out and talk to a child. You really want to go out and work with someone. But you have to sit down at your computer and you have to type again and again and again and send a form off. And that puts you into a box 
with a bunch of other people who've turned in forms. And then somebody reads those forms. And they come back and tell you that you won or you didn't win. Or maybe you won, but now you've got to go into another round. Tick-tock, tick-tock. All the time that child is out there who needs help. All the time that homeless person is out there who needs help. So where is the best place for the person with the form? Filling it out, tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Time is going away. Oh, but you're saying... You don't understand. We, we need the forms. Why? Again, why can't we have a situation where somebody who does good, wants to do good, comes in and, set and, and shows identification? Why can't we have days where there's funders who have millions of dollars? 50 people show up with their nonprofit idea. You give them the money. You divide the amount of money you have with the amount of people who showed up. And you give them the money. We need accountability. Well, accountability is your project, right? But we think accountability is a form. People fake forms. You can't fake a project. I would argue that it would be, you would have more accountability and better projects with shorter forms. You say you need a study on that. Oh, I got plenty of studies. Take a look at all the studies, where people did good for other people. And when people did good for other people, good things happened. They didn't happen because of a form. The form doesn't bring good actions. The form is a hindrance. The form benefits those who can pay to fill out the form. It doesn't benefit those who can do the work. And it doesn't benefit the people who need the services. Again, panacea. You know, I doubt getting rid of forms is a cure-all. But I do think we should have the conversation around the purpose and the why of a form. Because at the end of the day, that's an obstacle. I believe, to people doing good. Thank you for listening to the Stephen Thompson Experience. Today is your day. This moment is a moment to reflect and be aware. Put your feet on the ground and feel what is underneath you. Look up to the sky and say thank you. Look forward at your surroundings and be aware of all that you have. Now, move forward from that space. Go out today. Create, heal, laugh, love, and contribute. We're all here together. Thank you.